uh, that he'd mistreated me. And, and listen, I want to be very clear. The lifestyle that Russell Brand uh, lived by his own admission was an immoral lifestyle. But ladies and gentlemen, there's a big difference between immoral and illegal. There's a huge difference between immoral and illegal. He has, he has the right to make these kinds of, I would say, bad choices, as does she. But what media is doing here is they don't really care. They don't really care um, who he was having sex with. They don't really care in any, any real moral sense of what he was doing. What they care about is destroying him. You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debate, some of them behind the scenes. And I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, there are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump, when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read, as I have, the writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman. I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're gonna be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture. This is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. Wow, what a week. I feel like a mosquito on a, uh, a nudist beach. I hardly know where to begin. Unlike a typical Ideas Have Consequences podcast where I choose a theme and we run with that throughout the show, today we're all over the place. So I hope that you've taken your, your um, uh, ADD medication and you're ready to follow with us, track with us on all the things that we're going to cover today. We're going to take a look at... Russell Brand. Are you familiar with what has happened to him? So Russell Brand is, how would you describe Russell Brand? Maybe a, he's an actor, kind of a hippie, a modern day hippie. Do you have any idea how old he is? 40-ish, would you guess? 48, is he? Okay, so he's closer to my age than I realize. But Russell Brand is a guy who made his name in kind of raunchy comedy. You know, playing uh, playing the the part of a rock and roller, a drug user, a sex addict, you know, this type of thing. But somewhere along the way, Russell Brand got red pilled, and he started a podcast. And Russell Brand has come out and kind of admitted that he was wrong about a great many things, and he has turned on the Hollywood elitists, not elites, elitists, 
He's turned on the left in a very big way. And perhaps you've seen him um, on, say, shows like, uh, oh, what's his name? Bill Maher or maybe uh, Tucker Carlson or uh, all kinds of different shows where this guy has appeared. And he's going after vaccine mandates and he's going after uh, lockdowns and he's going after pharmaceutical companies and he's going after any number of the things that we've seen in the last few years. And he's become a very strong advocate of freedom. Now, I'd love to say that Russell Brand uh, has become a Christian. He isn't. I'm not sure that I can, I can say that he is a social conservative, but he is a guy who's been very honest in stating that he made a lot of mistakes in the past. He he, uh, in, a, in, a, in a video, defending himself from reefs, recent charges of rape and sexual harassment and sex abuse. Uh, I will put that on the screen for you. He says, look, back when I was living that life and I had the opportunity to, um, to sleep with a lot of women, I did. I did with a lot of different women, but it was always consensual. But now that Russell Brand has a big brand, now that he has a big audience, now that he has turned on the Hollywood elitists, now that he has turned on the left, now that he is exposing lies, well, how convenient. All of a sudden, some women have come forward and are claiming that he raped them. Now, uh, in sexual uh, misconduct of some kind, with them. Now, I want to state this on the front end. Uh, I want to be very clear that I wasn't there. I don't know, don't know exactly what transpired between him and them. But I will tell you this, I am highly skeptical that there's any validity to this whatsoever. And it is for this reason, the timing. Have you noticed that when you are making a difference people like this attack you. They will attack you and they will use unscrupulous means to do it. Does this happen to Russell Brand? If Russell Brand is still making the same kind of movies in Hollywood, is he still rubbing elbows with all those people? Not a chance. No, no, it doesn't happen. This happened and it is alleged on um, social media. I was reading um, and, and you can also watch a video of a woman who was contacted that apparently in media, there's a group that kind of call themselves sort of the, uh, the rape squad. And what they do is they are given a target, you know, someone that they are, they are uh, set loose on like a, like a pack of dogs to destroy. And so what do they do? They begin looking in that person's past for anything they can leverage against them. But they also begin talking to former um, potential sexual partners, ex-wives, uh, anyone that might have a story. But then they're coaching them in this direction. And one of these women has put out a little video. And this is, this is what she has to say. This is a woman who admits that she is a former sexual partner of Russell Brand. And she says she was contacted by the, you know, the rape squad. And this is what she has to say. I was contacted in June by a journalist uh, regarding a video I made uh, about a certain celebrity and a weekend that we shared together. The video is kind of viral. Uh, it's on my page somewhere if you want to go see it. And that certain somebody was, as most of you will be aware, Mr. Brand. 
they weren't going to use my story because it didn't fit the narrative for their documentary because he wasn't an asshole to me. <laughs> but here are some of the messages. Obviously, I will take out the person's name and stuff. We had a phone call. She contacted me for more information and I didn't contact her back because I kind of felt like it would be mean. Anyway, there you go. Put your bets on. It's a documentary about the one and only Mr. Russell Brand. So here she is saying, yes, I was a former um, sexual partner of Russell Brand. I was contacted by these group of people who were kind of coaching me in the direction of saying something negative about him. Uh, that he'd mistreated me. And, and listen, I want to be very clear. The lifestyle that Russell Brand uh, lived by his own admission was an immoral lifestyle. But ladies and gentlemen, there's a big difference between immoral and illegal. There's a huge difference between immoral and illegal. He has, he has the right to make these kinds of, I would say, bad choices, as does she. But what media is doing here is they don't really care. They don't really care um, who he was having sex with. They don't really care in any, any real moral sense of what he was doing. What they care about is destroying him. So they reach out to this woman and she says, yeah, they reached out to me. And it was obvious that when I had talked to them and told them that I didn't have a negative experience with him, they were no longer interested. They lost interest. So what they're doing is they're contacting all of these people, all these former sexual partners or potential sexual partners of his, and then it seems coaching them into or at least creating an atmosphere where it's desirable to be very negative about Russell Brand. And listen, the type of woman who would pursue a sexual relationship, a fleeting sexual relationship, uh, a fleeting sexual encounter like this, I don't think you can call it a relationship, uh, with Russell Brand is somebody who's doing it because they're, they're of a groupie mentality. They want, they want to say that they slept with a celebrity. And guess what? Here we are a decade later, and they're getting the opportunity to do it again, not, not necessarily to sleep with him again, but rather they get the thrill, the rush of attention again. And that's who these people are. We're talking about attention whores. We're not just talking about whores. We're talking about attention whores. These are individuals who want, who long for this kind of attention. And when major media, the London Times, I've done interviews with the, uh, the London Times, when the London Times comes to you and says, hey, we want to hear your story about how Russell Brand abused you. No way, no physical evidence, no evidence. These people say, yes, yes. There's nothing easier to convince people of, ladies and gentlemen. I've said this on a number of occasions. It is, it is let, let me reword that. It's very difficult to convince people of almost anything. If you've tried to convince them that your football team is better than yours, your baseball team is better than yours, your biscuits are better <laughs> than their biscuits, that where you're from is better than where they're from, your political, on, on some kind of political issue, it's almost impossible to move people. Except on one thing. It's easy to convince people that they are victims. It's 
easy to convince people they are victims. And that is because people want to believe that their failures, that their mistakes, that their lack of success, it isn't their fault. It isn't my fault. Someone else's fault. And that isn't to say, by the way, that there aren't genuine victims. My daughter, again, who we had on this show, is a genuine victim. But what we're talking about here is not victimhood. We're talking about individuals who are seeking attention and they're seeking to destroy another individual. Perhaps you have seen what has happened with Mike Lindell. Now let's watch this video of Mike Lindell. Dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. You don't remember my question, do you? Okay, and I'm not asking about the lumpy pillow calls. Uh, no, they're not lumpy pillows. That's not what they call on. Okay, that when you say lumpy pillows, now you're an You got that? You're an like is what you are. Like no, he's, a no, he's an ambulance chasing That's what you are. The lumpy pillows kiss my Now that's Mike Lindell, the my pillow guy. Um, no one can accuse me of having an agenda here to sell any pillows. I, you can go on his website and use code Larry and it will get you nothing. It will get you absolutely nothing because I'm not on the MyPillow gravy train as so many conservative podcasters are. And by the way, I have no problem with that. Some of you will complain uh, in the comments about commercials, but, the, but you're the same people who will say that you're capitalists. I mean, listen, folks, bills have to be paid. Things like this aren't done for free. I have to be paid. The people who are sitting over here have to be paid. All this equipment has to be paid for. It's expensive. There is a, a real expensive process of doing this. And I'm a capitalist, so I don't have a problem with friends like Eric Metaxas and Dinesh D'Souza and Sam Sorbo and numerous other people who benefit from Mike Lindell's sponsorship of their shows. Hi there. Sorry for taking over Larry's ad space. This is Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. A lot of folks simply don't realize that the problems in their life, the problems in our society can actually be traced back to globalism. When I was a young man, I was one of six children. My father didn't make a lot of money. I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood where most families supported themselves on a single income. Uh, not in luxury, but comfortably in the United States. That is simply impossible for the vast majority of Americans today. So something changed and, and we hardly talk about it, right? It changed dramatically. You know, just in my lifetime. As a former Wall Street guy, I believe in evidence and data. The political world is full of sloganeering. Uh, it's full of a lot of folks who make very grandiose statements, but don't back or cite those statements with evidence, with evidence and data. When that orange guy came down the escalator, he won me over, largely with his uh, correct assessment that globalism was harming Americans, particularly China. Uh, he saw it and he indicted it. And he and I spoke many times about trade issues, about globalism more broadly. When, when, when we view what is happening to us, when we view the injustices and the outrages that are happening in society, we need to look behind the surface level. Many of the ills that afflict this country can be traced back directly to globalism. Housing affordability, it has never been worse the globalists don't believe in strong borders. They see cheap labor. This 
sick and demented idea that children should have their sexuality, their, their sex changed permanently. It's super important for us to see when, when, there's, when there's an injustice, when there's an abuse, when there's a crisis, what is behind the crisis? Who is behind the curtain? So please click on the link in the bio to make sure that you are subscribed so that you're going to get the new episodes when the Steve Cortez show premieres. And uh, until recently, I didn't know anything about any of his products. But after I watched this video, I became a Mike Lindell fan. And I did because he is being attacked for the very same, just in a different way, for the very same reason that Russell Brand is being attacked. And that is because he has dared to stand up against the left. And I love the fact that he continued to do it right there in this particular deposition. This was a deposition. The man is being sued for his comments on, um, I think it's the Dominion voting machines or something to that effect that he's, that he's made negative comments about. And so some guy is, uh, is suing him over this, this frivolous lawsuit. And that is the way the left works. I have debated radical Muslims. There are a number of Muslims who follow this show, and I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful that you, that you follow this podcast. I enjoy reading your comments. I want to be very clear. I am a Christian. I do not believe that Islam is an authentic you know, faith. That is to say, I don't think the, the object of your worship is real. But I do admire this. I admire that you believe something. I admire that you believe something. I admire people who believe what they believe and are very open. They own it what they're about. The left isn't like that. The left is dishonest. When I have gone on Al Jazeera or debated Muslims, the radicals who meet in Hyde Park, Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park in London, and that's where the radicals really are, Muslims might just threaten to kill you. <laughs> I find that refreshingly honest. <laughs> the left, they're very dishonest. They try to bankrupt you. They try to silence you, bully you into silence, all while pretending. I mean, listen to the condescending tone of that lawyer in that deposition. Listen, I mean, you just want to hit that guy. And he's trying to provoke Mike Lindell. It's a very deliberate attempt to provoke him. And I'm glad that Mike Lindell kind of allowed himself to be provoked, allowed us to see kind of... Um, a little bit of his passion. I like the fact that he takes pride in, in his product. And it was after seeing this that I turned to my wife, we were sitting there one evening and I turned to her and I said, order a couple of my pillows. <laughs> I want to support this guy. I want to support this guy. Go on that website and order something. And by the way, I've been sleeping on it and it's great. So again, I don't benefit from telling you that. Again, today is just free advertising day. Brenda Gant, who else have we advertised today? Brenda Gant, MyPillow, Jax, Hardee's. We took a couple of shots at uh, Chick-fil-A and uh, McDonald's. And uh, so I guess we went in the other direction, you know, on that. But I think that there were a couple of others that we've advertised for free. What's that? White Lily, White Lily Flower. Please buy White Lily. Use code Larry. You'll get nothing. But anyway, it'll, at least it will confuse. <laughs> I'd love for everybody to go to my pillow and type in Larry, Larry, Larry. So that the order fulfillment department will see that and wonder, who is Larry? <laughs> what is this? Who is this guy? Anyway, I decided I wanted to support him because of how he's being mistreated. Now, we're going to move on to another topic here. I told you we're going to be all over the place. Right now, pause, take your ADD medication, and stick with me. 
while we move on to the next thing. And that is we go back to Elon Musk and Linda Yaccarino. Now, we did a podcast, I think just a couple of weeks ago, on Elon Musk, and um, I, but there's more that's happened here. So I want to kind of keep up with what he is doing. And that is because I said to you in that podcast of a couple of weeks ago that Musk had, Musk's Twitter account has been full of a lot of bravado on free speech. But he, as I pointed out in that podcast, he'd kind of gone silent on free speech there for a while. Now, remember, back in the spring, he hired a WEFR, that is a World Economic Forum member, Linda Yaccarino, as his CEO. And I told you this is highly problematic. This is highly problematic. You can watch that podcast, but something else has happened here. And that is, contrary to what I'd been saying, where he didn't seem to be talking on and making the bold statements about free speech, he's doing it again. Now he, now he is again. And here's, here's a tweet from just, just a few days ago. He says this, At the risk of stating the obvious, I don't know what's going on with every part of this platform all the time, but our policy worldwide is to fight for maximum freedom of speech under the law. And then he says this. We'll put this on the screen for you. Anyone working for X Corp, that is to say um, Twitter's new name, who does not operate according to this principle will be invited to further their career at any one of the other social media companies who sell their soul for a buck. <laughs> you know what that means? It, it means that if, he, if he's following through with this, threat, and it is a threat to the employees of X-Corp, of Twitter, he would have to fire Linda Yaccarino because she is stating quite clearly she does not agree with this mission statement. Now, what fascinates me is how it is, I mean, just practically speaking, you're the CEO hired by the owner of the company. I would think that I need to make sure that I'm very careful to not state anything publicly that disagrees with A, the mission statement of the company, and B, with what the owner of the company says. You know, any employer that I've ever worked for, I make sure, I mean, unless it's something, you know, immoral and unethical, and that's been very rare, I make sure that my disagreements are behind closed doors. That's just what hierarchy should look like. But when we come out into public and we're standing before the rest of the staff, before other employees, we're unified and I support my employer. I support my company head. How is it that Linda Yaccarino seems to feel no fear of Elon Musk? He's putting things like this out saying, if you don't agree with our mission statement of free speech, you need to get a job at Facebook or at Instagram or one of those other places over there. And here she is. So he's putting these things out. And then she goes on in interviews and she says, and I quote, well, we believe in freedom of speech, not freedom of reach. That is Orwellian doublespeak right there. That's Orwellian doublespeak. It's a nonsense statement. We believe in freedom of reach, not freedom, excuse me. We believe in freedom of speech, not freedom of reach. What she's saying is we censor you. It's just 
censorship, as I have said, from the other end. Rather than preventing you from saying something, they're just preventing people from hearing it. We're going to let you speak. We're just going to make sure that none of your followers see it, that they don't hear it. They don't know what it is that you said, that you're just speaking into a vacuum. If you look at what has happened on our YouTube account, you will know that that's what's happening here. That is what's happening here. We're getting choked on here. We're getting choked also on Twitter. Musk says that he doesn't know what's going on on this platform all the time. Well, I would agree with that. He doesn't have any idea what is going on. Loads of conservative accounts are being, uh, they are being choked. We're being choked on YouTube. And that is, by the way, why it is very important that you hit, you smash that notifications button. It is also why it is important, which I know some of you are saying you're not getting notifications when our podcast premieres, but there's a way around that. And part of the way around that is to sign up for our subscribe to our email list. And that is because we can circumvent the, the notifications that way. Make sure that you subscribe you go on there. I think it'll appear at the bottom of the screen. You, you can uh, sign up for the email list and then we'll send you notifications so that you know. But by the way, just in case you don't get a notification, just know this. A new podcast premieres on YouTube and on Twitter. It appears on both at 8 a.m. Central Time every Tuesday. Sometimes it's a little before, a little after. It depends on how long it takes to upload it. But be patient with us. It's coming every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Be looking for it. But make sure you sign up for the newsletter, excuse me, the uh, yeah, the email list and that you hit that notifications button so that we can remind you of that. But even if you don't, you'll know that that's when it's happening. But here's Elon Musk saying, ah, maximum freedom of speech under the law. Then his CEO is coming along and saying, nope, nope, that's, that's not what we're doing. We're, we're not doing that. We are about freedom of speech. Let's just say what you want. We just, we just won't let you have any reach. So Musk continues to have this freedom of speech problem. And yet, how is this possible? How is this possible when he has stated that he's committed to freedom of speech and also that he has stated that this is about the future of civilization. The future of civilization depends on the future of, in fact, here it is. Here's his tweet that he tweeted in November of last year. This is a battle for the future of civilization. If free speech is lost, even in America, tyranny is all that lies ahead. I would agree with that. But why aren't you doing it on your platform? Some of you will say, well, Tucker Carlson is. That's because Tucker Carlson is at such a level, it would be very obvious if you're joking him. Linda Yaccarino's lefty geeks who are sitting in cubicles somewhere like Beavis and Butthead choking the rest of us who don't have the visibility of a mosque. Excuse me. Uh, well, not his either, but don't have the visibility of a Tucker Carlson. They're absolutely suppressing accounts on there, and they're doing the same thing on YouTube, and they're doing it as well on Facebook and elsewhere. So I want to see Elon Musk fulfill this mission statement. Ostensibly, it's why he purchased Twitter to begin with. But I'm just simply pointing out here that what Musk has done is he's keeps saying that he's about free speech when his platform clearly isn't about free speech. 
What's he going to do about that? I don't know. Maybe nothing. Is it that he doesn't know what Linda Yaccarino is doing? If that's the case, then he's a very poor owner of his company. Or is it that this is kind of good cop, bad cop? He's playing the good guy. She's playing uh, the bad guy. Or are these two people playing out their war passive aggressively? Is it possible that Musk has sent out this tweet saying, if you're not committed to free speech, you need to leave the company and go work for some other social media company? Did he send that out? Did he send that out <laughs> really with her in mind without naming her? And did she make those comments in that interview about freedom of speech, not freedom of reach? Was she really, was that her pa pass aggressive response um, to his mission? I don't know. I'm not sure what's going on there. Now, time to pause again for just another moment and for you to take another ADD pill because now we're going to change gears again. I am a Southerner, uh, and I mean a, a, a real Southerner of the old school insofar as I like Southern food, not all the vegetables. You know, you go to go to your grandma's house for dinner. It's always called dinner on Sundays, on Sunday afternoons in the South. Dinner is in the evening throughout the rest of the week. But on Sundays, dinner is lunch. And your grandmother would have 14 vegetables, you know, and all sorts of other things. I'm not a real big veggie eater, but I do love biscuits. I love Southern biscuits, buttermilk biscuits. And for some reason, why is it that Chick-fil-A is because they become woke? Chick-fil-A cannot make a good Southern biscuit. They're Southern. Why can they not make a good biscuit? It's, it's not a good biscuit. There's a place... Here in uh, the South, it's called Jack's. I'm going to give them free advertising. Jack's makes an excellent biscuit. Uh, Hardee's, which appears to be dying, they make a very good biscuit. But otherwise, you go to what are ostensibly Southern restaurants, and their biscuits aren't particularly good. So I went on Twitter, and I said, look, if you're from the North, I'm not interested in your opinion, not on this. Don't be upset, posse. If you're from the North, I'm interested in your opinions you know, on the show on YouTube and elsewhere on Twitter. But when it comes to biscuits, I really don't want to hear from Northerners about how to make Southern buttermilk biscuits. You're, you're not qualified. If you're a man, as a rule, I really don't want to hear your opinion on it. If you're under 50, I probably don't want to hear your opinion on it. So I went on Twitter and I said, ladies, Southern ladies, send me your recipes. And so they did. They sent me all these interesting recipes, white lily flour, another free advertisement right there. White lily flour is a key ingredient. And that's just simply because the self-rising flour already includes a number. Of th Stick with me here. There is an idea in biscuits that I intend to get to. You wouldn't think biscuits offer ideas, but they actually do. I'm actually smarter after I eat a biscuit. I ate one this morning along with coffee. Can you tell? Anyway... A lot of these people pointed me to a woman named Brenda Gant. Now, Brenda Gant has a, that's with two T's, G-A-N-T-T. -T. And Brenda Gant, I'm going to guess that she is in her 70s and she is in Andalusia, Alabama, I believe. And she has a, a very large YouTube following. She is just as Southern as Southern can be. And she makes biscuits. Now, I want you to listen to her right here for a moment because we're going to get to something that she helped me put my finger on that I've been pondering for quite a while as it relates to something that's happening in the culture that I couldn't quite identify. 
and she brings it up unintentionally in this little video. A little bit, it wasn't quite big enough, was it? There we go. I've already greased my pan right here with some. Shake my buttermilk. Got my self-rising white lily flour in my bowl. And here I go making it. I'm gonna put in about a cup and a half, I guess. You know, my grandmother, she, um, my granny, um, well, both my grandmothers made biscuits and so did my mama, but my granny, she, she made them every single morning. And during the depression, she um, didn't have any flour. So she went down to her neighbor and she asked her, she said, would you please just give me a cup of flour? Bubba wants a biscuit. Now, Bubba was her husband. <laughs> His name was Selkirk. Now, there you go. Brenda Gant. She has a, a large YouTube following. She's a, a woman who just puts up her iPhone, records herself making these videos on everything from fried chicken and uh, vegetables to, as you can see, biscuits. And uh, so I began, you know, I began watching her videos on biscuits. She has several on, uh, on, on them. And I learned something a little bit different uh, from each one of them. But what Southern ladies will often tell you, not all of them, certainly not her, is that biscuits are very, very difficult to make. They are an art form. They are an art form. And that's why I think that when you look at a place like Chick-fil-A and various others, McDonald's has a biscuit. It's not really a biscuit. It's just bread. Why I think the Southern biscuit is dying. And I think that it's dying not because people's tastes have changed, but because of something that I will call generational wisdom. Generational wisdom. I've been thinking on this concept that I call generational wisdom for quite some time. And it's, it's this idea that there's certain things, they might be crafts, um, they might be responsibilities, it might be things like parenting, it might be things related to marriage, related to faith, related to a specific occupation, but where the wisdom isn't acquired in a single generation, it's require acquired in several generations, and it's handed down. Give you a case in point. Uh, I'm in France, and uh, I'm looking at a, an enormous wardrobe. And this wardrobe was made in the, I have it upstairs, it is, uh, was made in the 17th century. And instead of nails being used, it's made with little wooden dowels. And the antique dealer was saying to me, do not remove those. You know, if you're shipping it, don't take those out because he says they will expand and you'll never get them back in. And um, as I'm talking to him about this, he's showing me various things related to this. And he says, we can't, we can't make something like this today. We can't make it. And he was showing me another wardrobe. And he says, this is pre-industrial revolution. This is post-industrial revolution. And he says, you can see the differences in the way that they're made. One of them has you know, power tools, machining that is done on it. The other one is done entirely by hand. But he's saying the carpentry skills that were required to make this pre-industrial revolution wardrobe, those were handed down for centuries 
from a carpenter to his son, to his apprentices, and on and on and on. And he says, somewhere around the Industrial Revolution, we lost those skills because they weren't handed on anymore. And so the ability to do that, we, we just simply lost it. Well, this thing is shipped to the United States. And what do you know? The idiots who are putting it on a container, they do the very thing that he says don't do. They took it apart, completely apart, took all the wooden dowels out of it. Comes to the United States, and I make a call to several um, carpenters to come and take a look at this wardrobe and ask them, can they put it back together? And I was somewhat skeptical of what I've been told about the thing, thinking, ah, you know, modern carpenters will have no trouble with this. And they all said to me, look, I'm very good at what I do, but this requires a skill level and a knowledge that I don't have. I can, I can put this thing together for you, but not the way it was originally. It's going to have some nails and hinges and screws and things of this nature because I don't think I can put it back together the way this thing, the, the way this thing was built because that's not a part of my training. That's not the way that I was taught. Now, this brings me back to biscuits because... All those women who will say to you that biscuits are very difficult to make, it is because often they're following these recipes, sometimes very complicated recipes are what were sent to me. And Brenda Gant's recipe is very simple. In fact, what's fascinating to me is she doesn't really give you much detail on amount of time to cook them or how much buttermilk to put in or how much um, lard uh, to put in the biscuits or how much flour, none of that. And it's because it is an art form that she has learned. And did you pick up on it? She was making reference to her mother making biscuits and to her grandmother making biscuits. And she's telling stories about that as she goes. If you watch several of her other videos, she will often say things now, the way my mother would make these was like this. The way my grandmother would make these is like this, meaning that Brenda Gant, <laughs> and I followed her recipe, by the way, and we will put on the screen an image of my biscuits, which, by the way, are pretty good. I'll share the recipe with you. Go to YouTube and go to Brenda Gant <laughs> and follow what she says to do. But I've watched her videos several times, and because she has been doing this for 50 or 60 years or more, it all comes very natural to her. And if you're going to make Brenda Gant biscuits, you need to do more than just listen to her. You need to watch her because there's some things she's doing. She's not describing because it's just very natural for her. And again, this is the concept of what I call generational wisdom, generational wisdom. Now, what does this have to do with ideas have consequences? It has absolutely everything to do with ideas have consequences because what she helped me put my finger on is the fact that something that I have been witnessing. And I, again, I was trying to articulate this. I was trying to identify what is it that I'm seeing? And it was in watching her make biscuits that I figured it out. It is this concept of generational wisdom because as the family is breaking down in American culture, families, individuals are no longer being given the wisdom that comes 
from prior generations. Titus chapter 2, forgive me, I know that everyone who watches this podcast isn't a Christian, but bear with me for a moment. Titus chapter 2 in the Bible, it speaks of older teaching the younger, of older men teaching younger men, of older women teaching younger women. Uh, I often think that one of uh, the real problems in modern churches is in segregating everyone according to some kind of demographic. We put the old people over here. We put the the single adults over here. We put the young marrieds over there. We put the divorcees over there and on and on and on. We keep breaking them down into various demographics, into various age groups. And in so doing, we deny something that both could benefit from. I often think, I'll often say this to my mom, something that I always thought was very helpful to my mom is, again, she's 81 years old, and she has hosted uh, exchange students over the years. She has hosted exchange students, and that has always been good for her to get a teenager in her home that is living it. She has to uh, adjust her lifestyle to this teenager who is full of imperfections and often make unwise choices and comes in late after a curfew. She says, you know, whatever. And she's forced to deal with another human being rather than simply living alone. She's a, she's a widow. My father died in uh, 2006. But she's also learning something. She's being reminded of what it was to be young. She's being reminded of what it was like to date, of what it was like to be in high school, of what it was to, um, to experience uh, all of the hormonal difficulties of adolescence. And it's good for her. On the other hand, these young people who come and stay in her home have often, she's maintained friendships with them, uh, have often benefited from being with an older woman who has a different perspective, who can offer wisdom and could say, I wouldn't do that. You know what? Don't call him back. Let him, let him wonder you know, why you haven't returned his call. Don't, don't be so needy in pursuing that, you know, whatever the case may be. And uh, she might get them in the kitchen and teach them a little bit like a Brenda Gantt. She might, she might teach them a little bit about homemaking, a little bit about cooking, these kinds of things. But think of this across the board on a lot of different issues. I'm not just talking about, I'm not just talking about practical skills, like say auto mechanics, or how to cut down a tree. Those, those things matter too. But I'm talking about what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman. Um, I'm talking about the wisdom of parenting. You know, my wife and I, all our children are grown. We have four children. Our youngest is our daughter, Sasha. You can see the interview that I did um, with her um, a couple of months ago. Um, we, we were blessed to adopt Sasha from Ukraine many years ago. And then we have three boys. They're all grown. They're all successful. They're all very independent. And yet Lori and I have learned that parenting never stops. We're still parenting. And by that, I don't mean that we're making decisions for our children. Again, our children are all independent or that they rely on us, um, for financial support. They don't. Uh, rather, what I mean by that is there's still 
need of an opportunity for input into their lives because we have the benefit of a couple of decades on our children, a couple of decades of experience that allows us to say, when we see them parenting or we see them going through a career difficulty or, um, or some kind of relational conflict, we're in a position to say, hey, maybe, maybe this is Maybe this is a better way of doing it. And by that, I don't mean that 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 Lori and I are are infallible in uh, in our our advice uh, that we're always wise. I like to think that we're we've learned something over the years, or that all your elders, all your parents, or grandparents, or great parent grandparents, uh, um, have this generational wisdom. But there's no question that as society is breaking, as the family is breaking down. What, what might have once been in a family, a long, steady, continuous line has become a perforated line, that there's breaks between generations. And the result of that is that you're kind of starting all over. When you become a parent, you don't have your mother or your mother-in-law, or your dad or your father-in-law or someone else to say, hey, you know, I wouldn't let him do that. I wouldn't let him get away with that. Or, hey, it's important that you not provoke your children to wrath. Or, you know, it is important that your children maybe get out from in front of the TV and off of uh, devices and get outside and get some sunshine and fresh air, as my mother used to say. You're starting without that. As I've often said in regards to our daughter, Sasha, again, who was adopted from, from Ukraine, during that process, it dawned on me that one of the things that Sasha, who, you know, it just seems like, you know, Sasha was born into our family and that we've always had her, but what an orphan doesn't have are advocates. They don't have advocates. They don't have those individuals and you, you need advocates. All of us who have succeeded in anything have had advocates. The, the idea of a self-made man is, or woman is complete nonsense. You've had help somewhere. Now, maybe you've had less than others. I don't know. But you've had help somewhere. And we all need advocates. And parents and grandparents and often friends serve as advocates. Those are people who, you know, maybe help you get a job or write a reference for you or put in a good word for you or help remove roadblocks from you or offer you some financial support when you need it. An orphan doesn't have advocates. They're completely on their own. Imagine how difficult that is, that there's no one to speak on your behalf. When an injustice is done to you in your school, there's no parent to intervene or to push back a little bit. When something happens to you in society, there's no one there to come to your aid. We're becoming a society of orphans. We're becoming a society of orphans in that the line, instead of it being continuous, there are breaks between the generations and the generational wisdom that might be offered it might be handed down like a really good biscuit recipe is no longer there. It's no longer there on faith issues. It's no longer there on, on parenting. It's no longer there on marriage. It just simply isn't there. And I got to tell you, generational wisdom matters. Parents, 
Raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Grandparents, you need to keep parenting. You need to keep offering advice to your children. When you see them doing something foolish, don't chastise them, don't embarrass them, but offer them wisdom. Be honest about your own mistakes. There's generational wisdom in mistakes. There's great generational wisdom in our mistakes and admitting our failures and thus helping the next generation avoid those mistakes, avoid those failures because they benefit from something. I remember one little great little piece of generational advice that was given to me. When, I've never forgotten it, but it was given to me by an older man when, uh, when our firstborn, Michael, um, was, um, oh, I don't know, being mischievous or something. But this man who I know, who I know very, very well, he said to me, you know, I never asked my children to do anything I wasn't willing to enforce. Keep your rules to a minimum. I thought that was great advice. It was great counsel. Don't, don't have an avalanche of, of, of rules. Keep your rules to a minimum, but enforce them. Enforce them all. If you ask your child to take out the trash, see to it that he does it. Or the only thing he will learn from you is contempt for authority. Because if you think that by not enforcing the little rules, your child is going to turn around and obey the big ones, you're wrong. He learns to obey the big ones by you enforcing the little ones. If you're going to ask him to take out the trash, you have to be responsible enough to go and check and make sure that he did it and see to it that he does it. Now, that's loads. That's, that's decades of wisdom that is given to you distilled in just a short paragraph, in just a few sentences that is handed down. I didn't have to go through all the bumps and bruises of figuring that out after, you know, my parenting was off the rails. I learned that right off of the bat when Michael, you know, if he were standing on this table, was this high. And I never forgot that. I'm going to keep my rules to a minimum, and I will not ask my children to do something that I'm not going to enforce. Otherwise, they just learned contempt for authority. That stuck in my head. That's generational wisdom. Anyway, I want to, um, you know, we're just giving away free advertising today. Brenda Gant. Brenda Gant, um, lovely woman. Um, go and check her out on YouTube. She has a she has a huge following over there. And if you want to learn how to cook and uh, cook like a Southern lady, you need to be following Brenda Gant. Now, in our remaining time, I want to devote some energy to mobilizing you. Actually, a full podcast could be devoted to this next thing. Again, it's time to pause and take the next, <laughs> the next ADD pill because we're shifting gears again. We're shifting gears again. And it has to do with answering your question. And maybe I will come back and do a full podcast on this at some point. But it has to do with answering your question. What can I do? Okay. You know, I, what a podcast like this shouldn't be, and it's really a show more than a podcast. It's really a full-fledged show. What a show like this should be or should not be is that it is an avalanche of negative information where I tell you everything that's wrong with the world. And when you're done, you want to slit your wrists and sit in a warm bathtub. 
because you feel utterly depressed by what I have to say. I never want that to be the case. Please don't let me be guilty of that posse. I don't ever want to be the case because I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic because I serve a great God. Because my God is real. My God who said, Jesus Christ, who said, he is the same God who said in Genesis 1, let there be light. He's the same one who made the blind to see and the, uh, the lame to walk. He's the same one who will sit on the who sits on the throne and who will sit on the throne in judgment. I serve a real God. And because of that, I know we win. I know we win. No matter how bleak it may look right now, we win. But I also know that he's called me to be faithful, no matter what the circumstances and no matter how unknown the outcome. That's a direct quotation of Chuck Colson in his book, Loving God, which I read when I was I just graduated from high school. It was given to me as a high school graduation gift. Excellent little book. So I'm not ready to slip my wrists. I'm not ready to sit in that warm bathtub. I'm not ready to throw in the towel. And that is because I know that I serve a God uh, who is a great God. And um, I know he can do great things through a small group of very dedicated people. So in answer to your question, what can I do? It's really not a sophisticated answer. It's quite simple. You must engage. Now, maybe you don't have the platform that I have. Maybe you don't have um, Tucker Carlson's platform. None of us do. Maybe you don't have a big social media account. Maybe you're not a pastor, you know, standing in a pulpit before a large congregation or a small one every week. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. There are people you will meet who are in your sphere of influence that none of the aforementioned will ever meet, that I will never meet. You have an opportunity to engage with them. You have an opportunity to do it at the water cooler with your colleagues. Are there water coolers anymore? Eh, not really, kind of, sort of. I guess COVID, everybody got frightened of doing that. Um, over the backyard fence, with your neighbors, with your friends, even at church. These days, you kind of have to do it at church. And that is being willing to engage them with the truth and being willing to take a stand. You also need to make your voice heard. You need to make your voice heard with um, corporations that are pushing a, uh, a hard leftist uh, agenda. You need to make sure your voice is heard with your representatives, with your congressmen, with your senators, with your, with your governors, with uh, your school boards. You need to make sure that your voice is heard and you need to have courage. You know, it's great in uh, Joshua chapter one, Joshua is told to be strong and courageous. That command is repeated. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And then it says, but know that, that God's with you. That he's with you. You need to have that confidence. It is about relying on your own strength. It is about relying on your own courage. But I do want to warn you, and there's a reason why I've talked about Russell Brand, and there's a reason why I have talked about um, Mike Lindell, and that is because you will be attacked. Now, I recall a young man who was very interested in doing what I do for a living, came and spent some time with me. And uh, I like to, when I, when I can, I like to be helpful to people who are interested in becoming writers, who are interested in becoming authors, or who may be interested in, in doing what I do here on this podcast. 
And so I was laying out some very practical advice. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you, you need to be ready to do. And I think that probably in his head, what appealed to him was the idea of having a platform. It was the idea that, that sometimes people see what I do and others like me do for a living, and it looks very glamorous to them. It looks very glamorous. And I guess there's an element of it that is, you know, appearing on network television or someone else's podcast or doing this here or being published and writing books and traveling the world. That can all look very, very glamorous. But there's another side to that. And the other side to that is that while there are people who like what I do and who are very kind and very complimentary, last week I read to you a beautiful letter that was written to me by a former professor of mine. So I do get things like that, but I also get threats. I also, I also get um, people who say very vicious, mean things in an effort to silence you or to embarrass you. You need to know that when you speak out, you will be attacked. You'll be attacked. Now, this, this topic is very near and dear to me right now because I have a different standard than most of what courage is. I am very flattered by the many people who send me emails or write in the comments that you are a very courageous person, Larry. You're very courageous for doing what you do. Um, I'm honestly, I'm a little embarrassed by that. And I'll tell you why I'm a little embarrassed by that because some of you will know that just a month or so ago, I was headed to Nigeria. I never, never told you guys what actually happened with that. And the reason is because um, I've been there before. It's arguably the most dangerous country in the world. Uh, a Christian persecution that's going on there is terrible. Did you know that Christians, I see that there are some Muslims who come into the comments and who say that Muslims don't kill Christians. That is complete hogwash. That's nonsense. Christians are dying at a rate for their faith and what is called a situation of witness, according to Spectator magazine, at a rate of roughly 100,000 per year. 100,000 per year. That translates to 11 Christians being killed every hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Being killed for their faith. I'm not talking about an automobile accident. So I'm not talking about from some pandemic. I mean, being killed, targeted, murdered because they're Christians. And most of the time, it's also it's, it's happening sometimes in uh, secular societies like, say, let's say China and North Korea. But it's most of the time it's happening in Islamic states is where it is happening. And it's happening in Nigeria right now in a very big way. So a very dear friend of mine who is a bishop there who had invited me there in 2017, I believe it is, and I went on that occasion. I've written about this extensively. I wrote about it in my book, Around the World in More Than 80 Days. I've also written about it on my website at LarryAlexTaunton.com. And I wrote a series for Fox News called The Forgotten Christians of Nigeria. So I was on my way there again. It's because, um, you know, we communicate with each other fairly regularly, and the bishop has been telling me about kidnappings and murders of people in his diocese by the Fulani herdsmen militia. Now, the Boko Haram has also done this, but right now it's mainly coming from the Fulani herdsmen militia, which is in a, a Muslim terrorist group. And I wanted to be of some encouragement to them. Now, I went to Europe with the plan 
of I, when I'm going to Africa, I prefer to go to Europe first, kind of adjust to the, you know, to the um, to the time zone, and then take the short flight or shorter flight south um, to the African continent. If I'm going to North Africa, and in this case, um, I was going to Northwest Africa. And then flying back when I'm leaving, flying back to Europe and um, relaxing for a bit before I head home. And uh, so that was my plan here. Well, the visa didn't arrive in time and uh, I became sick in Europe. So I wasn't able to go. But all this is just by way of saying that when I, I hear people talking about making a stand in our culture for faith as courageous, I feel myself a little embarrassed because I'm thinking about people of genuine faith who are facing, excuse me, of genuine courage who are facing extraordinary persecution. In other words, my, 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 my presence might be and is being suppressed on social media, on YouTube, on Twitter, on X. Is being suppressed. That's a kind of persecution, without a doubt. However, it's not the same kind of persecution that they're suffering in Nigeria and in other parts of Africa and in other parts of the world. People who are facing mutilation, death, rape, uh, sexual slavery, uh, kidnappings, things of this nature. And uh, because those are people of genuine courage. Those are heroes to me. They're heroes. They're people of genuine courage. And my point to you is simply this. If you're a company owner and you're not willing to take a stand against the left, you're just going to bend the knee to um, ESG. You're just going to compromise. Boy, I fear for you. If you're one of those people who just kind of goes along with the sexualization, the transing of our children, I fear for you. If you're an individual who will not stand up and give voice to the millions of voiceless unborn children, I fear for you. If you are an individual who's not speaking out on behalf of the weak, on behalf of the persecuted, on behalf of those people who cannot defend themselves, I fear for you. What is required of you in the United States, ladies and gentlemen, isn't really courage in the sense of that you're facing, at least not yet, the time is coming, but we're not there yet, that you're facing threats of physical harm, that you're facing threats of mutilation, of rape, of these kinds of, of murder, of these kinds of things. What you're facing is social media cancellation. What you're facing is people calling you names. What you're facing is maybe an economic consequence. This has been fascinating to me because I move in circles with captains of industry, many of whom are mega millionaires. And it's a funny thing. You would think that the more money you make, the more courageous you would be because you'd feel more secure. But it actually seems to move in the opposite direction. Guys I knew who were once quite bold in their faith, as they have advanced and moved up the, you know, the corporate ladder and are making big bucks now, they're unwilling to risk it. And you see, most Americans are unwilling to risk their comfort, much less their lives. And that's why I say to you, if you want to see the cultural situation change, 
you got to speak up. You've got to take a stand. You must be prepared, however, to suffer um, some version of what Russell Brand and Mike Lindell have suffered. If there are, are sins in your past, somebody's going to find them and bring them up. But that's okay. That's okay. The Apostle Paul has said to us, we do not look in the past, we look forward. We look forward. And that's what I would urge you to do. Be willing to suffer. You know, I think it's in Acts chapter 5 and 6 where Peter and John are called before the Sanhedrin. And um, I believe they're flogged. And then they're, you know, they're released. I'm going off the top of my head. It's been a bit since I've read that story. So after they're beaten, it says this. It says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake, or as some translations put it, to suffer dishonor for the name, meaning the name of Christ. That is not the attitude that we have today. We, we are of the view that something has gone wrong if you are suffering any measure of persecution. You should consider it a badge of honor. You don't want to be a jerk. You don't want to just uh, deliberately provoke people. On the other hand, you need to be willing to state the truth. You need to be willing to take a stand. And here's a funny thing about that when you do it. And I'll make, make another biblical reference. When David arrived on the battlefield as a shepherd boy and saw the armies of Israel cowering in the trenches, and he saw Goliath coming out day after day, blaspheming the name of God and challenging them, defying them, this, I imagine, I imagine Goliath could trash talk Deion Sanders into a corner. I imagine he's a guy who, who was every bit the chest beater that that guy is. And David gets there and he goes, how is it? Who is this uns uncircumcised Philistine that she, he should come out and defy the armies of the living God? He says, I'll fight him. And then, of course, he did. And we're told when he slew Goliath, that a shout went up from Israel. A shout went up from Israel, and they pursued the Philistines. The point that I'm trying to make here is simply this, that when someone takes a stand, when someone is willing to put their head up just a little bit and to show some measure of courage in, in pushing back, it has the tendency to affect other people where they say to themselves, I could do that. I could take a stand. I could say something. And other people begin to exhibit courage as well. So you want to know what to do. You don't really need to ask me what to do because I think you already know the answer to your own question. You don't need a grand mission here. There isn't a, there isn't a great big template for what is to be done here, you just need to be willing to speak out and not just on social media. You need to do it face-to-face. -face. You need to do it in letters to your congressman. You need to do it in letters and emails and phone calls to um, uh, companies, uh, to, to those who are providing services. You need to be willing to do it with your neighbor and you need to be willing to suffer for his namesake. You need to be willing to suffer and rejoice when you do, because it means you're doing, <laughs> you're probably doing something right here. If you have not made enemies, you're doing something wrong. If you're not getting any pushback in sharing your faith and 
pushing back against this culture, you're doing something wrong. Because that means no one is threatened by you. Russell Brand, he's not a believer, but I'm grateful that Russell Brand has been willing to take a stand on some very important issues. And as a result of that, they need to destroy him. Mike Lindell, you know why they want to destroy Mike Lindell? Because Mike Lindell is funding loads of conservatives, loads of conservative podcasters. He's a Trump supporter, probably funding other elections. He is using his business, the money that he's making from his business to fund any number of worthy causes. They need to destroy him because of that. And so they do it in the most dishonest and cowardly way of all. The most cowardly way of all. This is the way the left works. When we spoke out against gay marriage, uh, I'm trying to remember when that was. Is that a decade ago? Anyway, whenever, whenever that was, uh, guess what? We got all kinds of threats. All kinds of threats. Efforts to shut us down. That we shouldn't be allowed to say anything on this particular issue. And it was done in the most cowardly way. So on the one hand, I want to tell you that you need to mobilize. On the other hand, I want to tell you that you should expect pushback. You should expect some measure of persecution. And to the rest of you, I just want to say this. Support those people who are being persecuted. Support Russell Brand to the extent that you can. Buy a MyPillow. Um, put in the code of your, your favorite conservative podcaster or whoever. Um, support these individuals. Do not allow them to be canceled. Sometime, at some point, it's going to happen here. It's going to happen. It's already happening in a small way on this podcast. Again, we're being suppressed. Our reach is, uh, is definitely being suppressed. Look, look at the views on the early podcast. Hundreds of thousands of views. And those have definitely just suddenly, boom, and that's because there's an effort to suppress us. But you know what? I'm kind of thrilled by that because that means we've been noticed. That means that we're rattling some cages. That means we're upsetting some people on the left. And it will, it, it will at some point, I'll be accused of something. Somebody's gonna be trotted out to say something about me. It's gonna happen. That's the way it works. But my choices are this. I have the choice to just crawl into a hole and say nothing. And just pretend, just be a Pollyanna. Just hear no evil, see no evil. Pretend that nothing is happening in the culture. Or I can say, you know what? I'm going to speak out because I want my children to have what I had. I want my grandchildren to have what I had. I want my great children to have what I had. And that is the freedom of choice. To not be compelled into anything, to not have freedoms robbed from them, to not live under a totalitarian regime and system. And that's the direction we're headed, ladies and gentlemen, but it can be stopped, but it will take you. It will take you. And the moment you take a stand, maybe even in your own church, you're gonna see a few others who are gonna rally around you and who begin to do the same thing. I just urge you to make sure that you are aware of the potential consequences and that you don't become discouraged by them. Let us remember this, that our Lord has said to us, be strong and courageous. And those are my final words for you, ladies and gentlemen, be strong and courageous.